EMS One Academy, a training solution designed for EMS chiefs, offers more than 200 courses and 250 hours of continuing education. Our modern learning solution includes flexible reporting capabilities and features to upload agency-specific courses and track credentials for recertification. Easily streamline daily administrative workflow with EMS One Academy. Start your free trial. Visit www.emsoneacademy.com slash inside EMS. Well, this is it again. We're going inside EMS as we do every week. And I can't wait any longer. With me always is my good friend, my companion, Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how are you? Uh, I'm good, man. You make that sound creepier every time you say it. Do my I? Friend, my friend, my companion. Do you know My now, life partner. <laughs> I don't know about that. But I do, I do now. Uh, I took a picture of you and I have it posted on my computer so I can see you when I'm talking. Oh, that's so sweet. I really don't, man, so don't get excited. <laughs> so how are things down there, world famous Pitkin, Louisiana? Oh man, we're right we're in the middle of the snow apocalypse, the life life as we know it is ending. Get your milk, get your eggs, we all gonna die. Don't forget the bread. Uh, don't forget the bread. Yeah, I um uh I'm actually in Saratoga Springs, New York right now. Oh, what's going um, on up there? What a beautiful uh, place. Doing a doing a seminar for E five support services. Uh Nancy and I are are uh, talking to a bunch of cool folks from upstate New York uh, for the next two or three days, um, and almost didn't make it out of out of Louisiana because apparently a little freezing precipitation shuts down the state. Oh my God, it was ridiculous. That's not surprising, is it? I mean, they probably don't have snow removal equipment or or the icer I mean, or anything. It or? was nothing compared to what we you know to the ice storms we've had. You know, we had a, a really bad one about. Uh, seven years ago but uh it's just ridiculous you know we got a little bit of freezing freezing precipitation and, and sub-freezing temperatures for a couple of days and and uh apparently the southern half of the state was just incapable of, of handling it because uh our three hour drive to the three and a half hour drive to the airport yesterday took about seven and a half hours um because we had to you know uh, find bridges that weren't closed and they had a hundred plus miles of interstate 10 closed uh because apparently there was some some you know crystallized water somewhere you know that, that just made it unsafe to drive upon i guess craziness 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 you sound like an old guy sitting in a rocket chair i remember back in ot two when we had the, so uh, well, we had the big ice storm in ot two and remember the birds falling frozen from the trees. So, um, yeah, not funny. But, um, <laughs> you know, Kelly, I had a conversation this week. And, uh, you know, we hear it all the time in EMS. And the discussion really goes around pain management and how paramedics aren't given pain oh, management because suck at it. of the drug seekers. Yeah, I mean, they're, uh-huh. they're drug seeking. You know, to me, it makes no difference. You know, if they're going to have uh, pain, what they're going to perceive as pain I'm going to go ahead and give them the medication that they're going to uh, want. I mean, it's not for Amen. me to make the determination of uh, if they're drug-seeking or not. Um, but I-, I thought it'd be a good show to kind of talk about some of the characteristics of a good pain management assessment. 
Mm-hmm. Let's go ahead and overview some of the characteristics of that assessment, some of the observable signs, some of the subjective signs, and then maybe we even talk about how to document that. Mm-hmm. But first, you know, when it comes to a good pain assessment, Kelly, I mean, so Chris Subalero's in the ambulance. Oh, my God, Kelly Grayson. Oh, my God, you're my hero. You're my hero. I'm in pain. Go ahead and help me. What is it that you're looking for that's given you the guidance to say, I've got to take care of this patient's pain? patient says i'm in pain that's all it takes that's all it takes all right it, then. Oh, that's awesome man good talk all right everybody thank you for joining <laughs> hey boy that was the quickest quickest podcast ever no but but really we have this institutional arrogance in ems and it's not just ems you see it in the emergency department too if there's any if there's any subset of, of care providers that are even more cynical than ems providers it's er nurses um but uh, we have this idea that, you know, well, you know, the pain has to impress us for you to get any pain meds for it. And, and, and we apply our our own subjective bias to, to people's pain complaints um, and, and tend to dismiss uh, dismiss their complaints, you know. And it's, what's the, I forget who it was that said, you know, it's easy to dismiss pain when it's not your own. Um, and, and honestly, my my approach to it has always been I would rather be a chump than a jerk. I would much rather get played by a drug seeker than not medicate someone who is legitimately in pain. So I have a pretty simple uh, approach to it. If someone is in pain, I ask them if they would like pain medication, period. And if they say yes, I give it to them. I'm not paying for the fentanyl. I'm not paying for the ketamine. Uh, It's not coming out of my pocket. And my employer and my medical director has made it clear that they take people's pain seriously and want us to treat it. So, you know, uh, to me, that's my job. And I just, I don't get people who think that, that they need to be parsimonious and handing out the pain meds and that we're going to do someone harm by controlling their pain. Uh, Hang on one second. Just the opposite. Hang on one second. Parsimony. Uh, O-U-S. Okay. So, but let me ask you this question. Were you always that way? It was my word of the, it was my word of the day calendar. Were you always that way though? As a, no, no, I used to be a, I I used to be a a prick. Um, well, not so much a prick, but I was, I was saltier about it. You know, I don't know that used to is the word. I mean, I think that there is still, you know, that, that came with my, my epiphany of sorts. And I've had several of them, several of them over my career, but the, the big epiphany was, was that, People have a much different view of good service and good care. The people I work on have a much different view of good care than I do. Um, what is important to them is not necessarily important to me. And who am I to say that that what they think is important, um, some TLC, a smile, uh, a little kindness, uh, is not just as important as the sophisticated medical care that I'm uh, I'm capable of providing so if that being the case um then i think i owe it to them to to give them what is important to them uh i don't neglect the medical care in favor of that but doesn't take any longer to hold an umbrella over someone or or wrap a blanket around someone or to smile while you're doing medical care um so why not do that you know And, and treating their pain is part and parcel of that all right, let's go ahead, man. I, I think you bring up some really good points, and I think I want to move to covering just a little bit about a good patient assessment or a good pain assessment. 
when it comes to dealing with patients who say they're in pain? I mean, because one of the things that we need to do is if someone really is going to say they're in pain, and I, I uh-huh. kind of like your strategy of saying if they're in pain, I'm going to give them the medication they need. But still, even with that, I think we need to document that correctly, and we need to be oh, able yeah. to do an assessment that's going to be able to show the documentation of what we did, how we did it, both pre and post. So. One of the things first is I think we need to know is that pain is a very, very subjective uh, um, uh-huh. experience. What I think is a 10 out of 10, what you think is a 10 out of 10 is going to be something that's very, very different. Now, I'm a I'm a migraine headache sufferer. Actually, I have cluster headaches. What and a, a causer, too. Yeah, and whatever. And they come in a specific time of year, and I'll get three or four migraine headaches for a period of three to four weeks every time in a specific year. And this is something that really kind of kicks me in the butt. Now, uh, I can I get fu- mine about 5 p.m. every Tuesday. Yeah. What is that? When you pick up the kid? No, when I when when we record. Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh. So, but one of the things that we think about now is uh, just because it doesn't seem like it would be painful to me doesn't necessarily mean that it's not painful to the person who is experiencing it. So when we think about our, our subjective components of pain, we know that we're going to go through our, our, uh, our OPQRST. But one of the things that we really need to add to this, Kelly, is, and we know that it's uh, you know pro- provocation, quality, region, location, radiation, whatever you want to do, S is severity or other symptoms, T is timing. But U is understanding. And one of the things that I've always done when it comes to a uh, pain assessment is I want the patient to kind of tell me his or her experience or his or her understanding of why they have the pain that they do. So it's not just that I'm in pain. Why are you having pain? What is it that's causing the pain? I want them to experience that. I want them to tell me what that is. And I want to know from their own lips that they understand what's going on with this pain. If they're giving me something that's willy-nilly to say, uh, you know, I'm not really sure, okay, well, then through the assessment skills that we're doing and through the, the pain assessment, it's at least giving us the, the background information to have an understanding as to why. And we don't do that. We just hear the word pain, we automatically shut ourselves down, and we don't investigate it any further. Yeah, well, my approach to... to assessing a patient's pain like i said i I ask them simply if if they're in pain um uh but i know two things incontrovertibly that if i gave pain medication to every patient that said they had 10 out of 10 pain um two things would happen uh number one i'd always have an empty narcotic pouch number two i would be subjected to far more random drug screens <laughs> did you do the just, did you do the bunny ears when yeah, you did, ran, I, did yeah. the, I did the air quotes i'd have a, a lot more random drug screens um but what what has often surprised me is how many patients will actually refuse pain medication so i leave it up to them uh or if they're obviously that's a really pain, great point. you know and they're and they're they're just they're you know the I'm feeling bad for them. I'm, I'm. That's part of the reassurance from the very beginning. Hey, man, we're gonna we're gonna treat your pain as quickly as we can. Um, don't worry, I've got some stuff that's gonna make this make this more tolerable, or, or ideally make it go away altogether. Um, but you'd be surprised how many times I'm turned down. I said, Would you like something for the pain? They said, No, no, no. I, I, just, I don't like the way that stuff makes me feel. And okay, so we do everything non-narcotic that we can do to to uh, ease their their pain and their suffering. But 
Um, I get turned down a lot. But I would imagine I, that. I bet you get turned down a lot. Oh, 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 oh for pain. Oh, you're so so let me, let's go ahead and cover this, though. And one of the things that I think is important now is, is for you to kind of, you know, think about those, um, those signs or those indications during your pain assessment as to if the patient is really having pain. First, there's behavioral factors, Kelly. Let me run them down for you. Let's talk about them. Facial expressions. You can tell when somebody's in pain. Like right now, me talking to you, my face is really contorted with pain. And then there's body movements. We've seen those people who've been, you know, really in pain that are trying to find a position of comfort. It's not laying down. It's not sitting down. It's not standing. I'm laying down again. I'm sitting again. I I got my arm here. I got my arm there. I got my leg up to my chest or whatever that is. So those body movements are going to be very important. And also one of the things that you have a lot of that is a great telltale sign is a lot of patients who are in pain and depending on where that pain is, is they have muscle tightness. They're, they're just not mm-hmm. relaxed. Their shoulders Sorry. aren't falling. Their body is tense. And it really is a big uh, indicator. And then finally, in the sound of their voice, if someone's in pain, I'm not talking to you like I'm talking to you now. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of grimacing. I'm kind of fighting through that pain as well. So when we think about the behavioral indicators of pain assessment, those are some of them. What do you think? Well, you know, Part of the thing that is that is kind of fueled the backlash uh, against uh, opiates and and the the pain management um, skepticism among our colleagues is the very subjective nature of pain. First of all, the the Joint Commission did nobody any favors by declaring pain the fifth vital sign. That's horse manure. It's important, but a vital sign by its very nature is objective, verifiable, measurable, and you can't measure a subjective finding. Uh, you just can't. You you can't place that on on a par with uh, vital signs. Uh, now they backed away from that, but there are um, uh, and some people don't have the objective. But it wasn't thing. it wasn't until last year that they backed away from that when they created yeah, yeah. a lot of they created a lot of potential addicts because of the way that they were treating the pain scale. Yeah, that and and Prescani scoring and and uh, the Burger King approach to uh, to uh, emergency department care. You can have it your way, um, but. You know, a lot of people are skeptical about pain because they're uh, uh, looking at uh, what they think are objective findings through a very subjective lens. Uh, you've, you've probably heard it said that from paramedics that, oh, well, you know, if it doesn't impress me or if you're not laying there squirming around on the stretcher, you're not getting anything from me because obviously you're not hurting bad enough that, you know, it impresses me. Or their vital signs weren't even altered. And, and when they say that sort of thing, that shows that they, uh, they don't understand the nature of chronic pain for certain. Um, because, uh, you know, a lot of these chronic pain patients have acclimated to a certain degree of pain, and they no longer have that sympathetic nervous system response to, to noxious stimuli. They don't hurt, uh, or they hurt, but they don't get tachycardic. They don't get hypertensive. They don't squirm around. They may be, uh, you know, fairly stoic about the whole thing, but at the same time, experiencing a, a degree of pain that will leave you and I whimpering in the corner. So I try to take their their word for it, you know, and 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 take it at face value. Because as, as I said earlier, you know, I'd rather be a chump than a jerk. Um, people don't grasp that there are there are more than just the physical, physiological aspects of pain. A huge part of the pain equation is psychological. 
and there's some pretty compelling data out there to show that that not managing a patient's pain heightens their their psychological response to it uh, lowers their pain threshold for for months and possibly even years to come um, so we actually do the patient a great deal of psychological benefit towards future pain episodes by uh, by uh, treating their pain adequately when we encounter it yeah so let's go ahead and talk about some of those uh, those physiologic changes that uh, you talked about and i think that those are things that we're going to be able to see and you know I, I, I and we get there i'm going to push back a little bit on this this vital sign thing where you're talking about chronic pain they're not going to see a change uh, physiologically uh, i i think that just uh, i think that dave just learned not to show that there's challenges but if we think about the pathophysiology of how the body works you, you're going to see an increase in pulse or a decrease in pulse you're going to see an increase or decrease in blood pressure because it's the body that's doing it it's not that i can control it because i can control my pain but when we think about some of those physiologic uh, uh findings you know, we talk about heart rate, we talk about blood pressure, we talk about respiratory status, we talk about SpO2, and in a lot of times, you're going to see a decrease in that SpO2. you got end tidal CO2, the patient is going to have perspiration a lot of times when it comes to pain, uh -huh. there could be pallor of the skin, and there could be dilation of the pupils. Now, when we talk about heart rate, blood pressure, respiratory rate, Kelly, when All those talk things about, are sympathetic nervous system responses. And they could increase or decrease. So I'm not saying that uh, if a person has an increased blood pressure or it doesn't have an increased blood pressure, it can go either way. It can go high or low. So mm -hmm. what you have to be able to do now is you've got to be able to be the ultimate detective of the body. And when somebody says that they've got pain in a specific area, it really needs to go back to your understanding of the anatomy of that specific area, and then secondarily, the pathophysiology of that area to make the determination how that the sympathetic nervous system is going to react to that with either a positive increase or a negative decrease in those vital signs. And another thing you commonly see is, is a lack of understanding of the different natures of pain. Uh, they're unable to distinguish uh, somatic versus visceral pain or parietal pain versus visceral pain and, and, and that sort of thing. They don't understand the, the, uh, the nerve connections and the, and the uh, sensory nociceptive pathways and everything that, that are responsible for sending those pain messages. Um, you know, uh, you know what organ pain is like the our, our organs and our viscera are very poorly innervated. I have, a, I, have a, I have a piano. I don't have an organ. <laughs> uh, you have a keyboard, and that's about it. Um, but uh, <laughs> you totally threw me there. But the um, you know organ pain, slow, vague ache, ill-defined, uh, often radiating other parts of the body because they share common nerve roots and the brain may misinterpret where those signals are coming from, as opposed to your your parietal, uh, your somatic type pain where uh, most of those areas of the body are richly supplied with, with uh, nociceptors and, and the brain can very accurately determine the source and the nature of the pain. Um, but people don't grasp that you know they don't uh, you've got somebody that's complaining of just a vague unsettled feeling or or an ache or anything and people don't take that uh as seriously as they would with say you know an obvious injury that you can see with your own two eyes it looks like it would hurt you know what does btls stand for boy that looks sore 
know, and 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 that that impresses them that they would uh, uh enough that that they they'll dole out some pain meds for that sort of thing, um, and you know the other thing is I, I ran into this the other day. Um, some of the the people we bring patients to, um, I don't know how do you reconcile your your idea of good patient care and adequate pain management uh, with somebody you're going to hand a patient off to that thinks that, you know, pain is a character builder and, and uh, uh, discounts most people's reports of pain. Yeah, but I you think know. that one of the things I'm thinking about is when they're in my care, I'm going to give them what they need. When exactly. they're in, when they're in yeah. somebody else's care, you know, then that's really going to come from the patient side, Kelly, where they're going to say, you know, come here and give me some pain medication. But when they're with me, I can't worry about the care that they're getting in the hospital. Yeah. I'm going to be an advocate when I'm with the patient. And then when I go and get back in the ambulance, I have no more control over that. But yeah. so as, as we're getting up there in time, I want to go ahead and cover some of the specific things that I think after we've done a pain assessment, what's the proper way to document that, that you're going to be able to prove in your chart that you gave the medication, you gave it for the right reason, and here are the reasons why you're saying it. First, let me go ahead and, and give you some of those highlights, Kelly. First, the source of pain. What was it that was causing I'm sorry. What was it that was causing pain in the patient that gave you the the inclination that you needed to treat it? Secondly, it's the patient's self report. And from a sensory standpoint, what was the intensity? What was the location? Tell me about the quality. What did you do that made it better or worse? Go to onset and then really kind of the first onset of when that pain existed. Then from an effective standpoint, and that's effective with an A, you want to talk about the emotions. What kind of emotional state were they in when they said that they were in this pain? And then you could even go to a, a cognitive uh, end of that when it comes to documentation. And you really want to think about the meaning of pain. So when we use the you in that PQRST and then you in that understanding, the reason that you're asking that question uh -huh. is when you get into the documentation of that, you want to be able to uh, uh, you know, document that the patient understood why, so on and so forth. Then yeah. you want to go ahead and list your uh, observable indicators. Those are going to be the physiological ones we talked about. Those are going to be the behavioral ones we talk about. And then you're going to give your intervention for the pain. But then the thing that you need to do as well is you need to be able to do a before and after comparison as the patient mm -hmm. was uh, viewed this way. After medication, they were viewed this way. What do you yeah, think? That uh, yeah, I, I think that's a sound approach. Uh, our our pain management protocol uh, at the Borg um, simply states that we should be treating any pain rated to five or better, and our goal is to reduce uh, at minimum the stated pain level by half. So if they're complaining of a five out of ten pain, we want to get it down to a two. Uh, if they're complaining out of a, a ten out of ten pain, we want to get it down to a five. And I'm shooting for zero with good vital signs and good level of consciousness. Um, the other day, I, I hacked off a, an ER staff because I brought in a patient with a femur fracture uh, asleep. <laughs> um, I, I snowed him a little bit harder than I intended to, but bottom line was is I had a patient with, with rock-solid vital signs, good SpO2 on room air, good CO2, uh, you know, a CO2 of 40 and a respiratory rate of 14, and he was asleep, and they had to wake him up to assess him. Uh, so 
I, I look at that as a win. It pissed the nurses off because they thought that I, uh, you know, um, inappropriately snowed a patient. And truthfully, I, I wish I hadn't done it that well. But still, I look at it like a win. One of the things that we see so often in, in pain management is a couple of fallacies. Number one, if a patient can't adequately communicate their pain level to us uh, or communicate in any, any meaningful fashion, uh, these patients uh, tend to... Uh, um, get under treated for pain. Maybe uh, a mental problem, maybe a language barrier, um, maybe a, a nonverbal patient or, or a pediatric patient. Um, and, and many providers feel uh, reticent about giving pain medication to those kind of people. Um, so I think providers need to know at least one objective pain scale um, besides the subjective self-reported pain scales like the Wong Baker faces and the 1 to 10 numeric scale, something like the flock scale. That's uh, a good one. Another thing too, Kelly, is that there are pain scales as well. There's a critical care pain scale. There's a pain scale for mm -hmm. patients who are intubated. So there are a lot of things to, to consider as well when it comes to those different pain scales. Let me ask you this final question before we move along for the day. You have the ability to put anything on your truck for pain management. What are you using? Uh, fentanyl and ketamine. Interesting. I would think that one of the things I would like to have for treating pain is mm -hmm. nitrous oxide. Oh, well, okay. Yeah, you're, you're right. Uh, I would I would add nitrous oxide to the mix. You can't you can't come back on my bandwagon. You wouldn't have. No, you're you're right. You're right, and I, I think we've talked about that in, in previous podcasts. I just overlooked nitrous, um, and and I think the the FDA is doing us a major disservice by not um, not approving Entonox to be administered in the United States. That's a great point because uh, yeah. we're we're limited because apparently EMTs are too stupid to invert a compressed gas cylinder a couple times when the temperature drops below a certain point. That's mm -hmm. the whole thing uh, because it separates out at low temperatures. You have to mix mm -hmm. it back up. That's just Charles so, Law. You just got to know what that Charles yeah, Law is. But just, I got to tell you, I think this is going to be one of those shows where yeah. we're going to get a lot of comments on it. And we want to know what people think about you know the following. You know, Again, our job is to be the ultimate detectives of the body and to treat the patients that we're going to see. And one of the things that we need to think about is we need to be able to, to take care of our patients. We need to be able to give them the pain management they need. You need to do your due diligence in doing a good pain assessment. You need to be able to make sure you document that correctly. And you need to be able to you know get off the high horse to say, I'm not giving medications to people. But I think we're going to get a lot of comments on this show, Kelly. I do too, and 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 I anticipate some pushback uh, about the current opioid epidemic and and the backlash in that. Um, I'm going to state unequivocally now that we are not contributing to the opioid epidemic by liberal application of, of pain uh, management in the field. We're just not. We're not giving the amount the potency, uh, the duration of drugs that it takes to get someone addicted. And even if we're giving them to an addict, we're not giving enough to get them high. So, so, you know, remove that from your mind. We need to be more aggressive about treating pain um, because we don't do a particularly good job of it. And that's one of the few measurable things that we can do 
to help our patients. So if you don't have uh, a numeric pain scale that you're comfortable with, learn something like the flock scale or the poker chip scale for kids, uh, the, the pieces of hurt, uh, as it's also known. Uh, and, and don't be afraid to give out those pain meds uh, for the patient that obviously needs it. And the last thing I'll say before we end it up is the Dilaudid Ferry does not meet your patients at the door to the ambulance bay. Uh, there is a significant time delay um, uh, to, to pain medication in the emergency department. If my patient falls and breaks her hip outside the doors, they're getting fentanyl before they get off the ground. That's just the way it is because I've seen it happen too long uh, and too many times that, that there are 15, 20, 30-minute delays while they're sitting there writhing in agony. But, hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. Do we do a good job of treating pain? How can we get better at it? Email us your concerns, comments, questions, and suggestions at the show at ems1.com. And for myself and co-host Chris Ceballero, the most painful dude you'll ever podcast with, I'm Kelly Grace. Thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.